I'm Speech Thomas from the hip-hop crew Arrested Development. On the new VPM podcast, Track Change, I take you behind the walls of Richmond City Jail, where I help four men record an album and hear how they're trying to break free from a cycle of addiction and incarceration. Been so long since I've been free. Subscribe to Track Change in your podcast app. From Story Mechanics and VPM. Hello. How y'all doing? Reporter Sophie Behrman and I are meeting up with Earl Ruffin, the second man to be exonerated by Mary Jane Burton's clippings. We're at a high school gymnasium in Suffolk, Virginia. Earl's invited us to his stepdaughter Nyla's basketball game. Shoot the ball, Nyla! Well, let's see if she make these free throws. Spread them fingers and bend them knees! 40 years ago, Earl was a star player. When was the last time you played basketball? <laughs> oh, it's been a while since I played. When I first came home, I played. First came home from Southampton State Prison. So much was taken away from Earl the day he was arrested in 1982. When he left work with two police officers, he assumed this mistake would get cleared up in no time. He didn't go home again for 21 years. And when he did... The investigating officer, no apologies. The district attorney, no apologies. My lawyer, no. The judge done passed away, so I was expecting to hear nothing from him. And I ain't never heard of a judge apologizing for sending nobody to prison. Never in my life. But anyway, uh, nah, no, no apologies. But if it was me... I would want to apologize. I would. Something of this magnitude, something of this magnitude, to destroy a man's life, to take away 21 years of his life, and you can't sit there and and say that you was wrong, you can't admit to the fact that you was wrong? There was one member of the jury who apologized to Earl in an anonymous letter. And then there was Anne, the woman who was assaulted. She wrote me a letter. This was in May 2003. Dear Mr. Ruffin, I thank God for the gift of DNA testing. I thank God for Miss Burton. Most of all, I thank God for your strength and your position in finding justice. I do not know how to express my sorrow and my personal devastation. It's like she's trying to say sorry in every possible way she can think of. I am so sorry for the part I had in this injustice. The letter is heartbreaking, especially knowing how much pain it caused Anne to learn that she'd misidentified Earl. I feel personal responsibility for your conviction and your incarceration. He finishes reading and sets the letter down. So... How do you feel? Like, I know it's been a long time, but... Well... It's, it brings back memories, you know. I still, I feel the pain that I've suffered through all this injustice. And uh, I, I, I'm strong enough now just, just to live with it. I, I know that's why I'm here today uh, doing this interview with y'all, uh, that I'm man enough to handle it, you know. So, uh Uh, I'm okay. I'm okay, you know. Yes, I'm okay. 
As we come to the end of our 12-episode series, how much hope should we have that men like Earl Ruffin won't be sitting for an interview like this 40 years from now? What's being done to make sure the system gets it right? And what role can forensics play in that? This is Admissible. I'm Tessa Kramer. So has DNA proved to be the revolution for forensics it was promised to be? In many ways, yes. When you look at DNA as a tool for crime scene investigation, especially when it comes to the kinds of cases we're talking about in this series, that is, violent crime and even more specifically, stranger rapes, DNA technology has helped to improve the accuracy of convictions. Nationally, if you look at convictions from the 80s, before forensic labs were using DNA, where someone was convicted and then exonerated years later with DNA analysis, there were 136 exonerations. Fast forward to the 2000s, now they're using DNA analysis at the time of the crime, and it's a different story. Between 2000 and 2009, this number drops to 12. This isn't the full picture. It's one indicator. Many wrongful convictions never come to light, especially when there's no evidence left to do DNA testing. We've seen over and over in our story the many barriers to challenging a conviction, especially for people of color. Still, this is a dramatic change from 136 to 12. But is DNA the panacea, as it's also been called in this series? That... I'm not so sure about. When I showed defense attorney John Sheldon the copies of the lab's record books where Mary Jane had erased and changed results, his response really stuck with me. This is, uh, this is the worst kind of fraud that we always think exists, and everyone says, no, it doesn't. It's rare to get the faker, the person who gets result X, and they erase it, and they write Y. But what you do get is the person who runs the test and they don't get what they like. And so they say, yeah, you know, I probably didn't do that right. So you go back and you do it again. And John says this happens even with DNA analysis. If you think about how they get their their work and who they report it to, they get their work from the police. And you can't usually get biological material without some background about it because you need to know, am I testing this because I care about the male or female because I want to know, is this a human, you know, human or or something else? You have to know something about the theory of the case. And you need to know, well, what I really want to know is, does this from the genes match this Q-tip? Because the Q-tip is from the guy and the gene swab is from the girl. You are part of law enforcement because you're co-opted by your clients. These are your clients. It doesn't have to be. It's easy. It would be easy to separate the testing from the theory of guilt, but they don't do it. I heard this over and over. The science has gotten better, but forensic labs are still far too enmeshed with law enforcement, and analysts are still far too susceptible to influence and implicit bias. The problem is that the labs are setting up their procedures in a way that allows for these elements of bias to creep in. 
This is William Thompson, who studies the human factors involved in forensic science. They're not doing their work in a way that's adequately rigorous and scientific, and that insulates them from external pressures. And then you have this phenomena where you keep seeing, you know, the apples just keep going bad in the, in the same familiar ways. <laughs> you, see it, you see it over and over again. These stories of bad apples crop up in labs across the country in all sorts of forensic disciplines. As I've been reporting this story, I kept having the feeling that I had to keep zooming out and out and out just to see the scope of the problem here. And you can see the scale at which this may be playing out in headline after headline. Trial testimony of an Oklahoma chemist was false. Now hundreds of cases in which she testified are under review. In Chicago, a police crime lab analyst named Pamela Fish disregarded exculpatory blood testing. A chemist testing drugs in a state crime lab in Massachusetts spent years getting high on the job. Now the D.C. auditor says part of the problem is that the crime lab has failed to operate independently as it is supposed to. Former state chemist who admitted to faking tests and identifying evidence as illegal narcotics without even testing the evidence. It's alleged that Zane faked data, concocted results, and testified using phony blood evidence in hundreds of felony trials. Any testimonial or documentary evidence offered by Zane at any time should be deemed invalid, unreliable, and inadmissible. We have seen too many bad actors in the forensic world to be able to say this is just an aberration rather than really confronting what is truly a systemic problem. Manka Sinha is a law professor at the University of Maryland who specializes in forensics. We have a tendency to think of forensics like maybe it's the clean part of the criminal legal system, even if there are dirty parts like police brutality and racism and prosecutorial misconduct. But that's not the case. More on that after the break. A few months ago, I read a paper that Menka Sinha published about forensics reform, and I was eager to talk to her. I remember vividly in my first couple of weeks as a public defender, sitting in the classroom that we use for training, and this mentor of mine coming in and doing the first class I ever had on forensics and my mind being blown right then and there. Menka started her career as a public defender in Washington, D.C., That's where her skepticism of forensics started to take root. When you're in law school, for the most part, you don't learn anything about forensics whatsoever. And you go into practice with all the same assumptions that lay people do, which are that this stuff is really reliable, that everything is really accurate, and it's as clear and black and white as the ding, ding, ding you see on CSI. And I remember him walking us through the flaws in these various disciplines up to and including DNA, which is considered the most reliable of all forensic methods. I remember when I got to this place of like, I'm starting to see these flaws. I'm starting to get that these are flaws. And then going into a courtroom and trying to have this conversation with a judge And just feeling like I was banging my head against the wall because 
either they didn't see it or they didn't want to see it or they refused to see it. But that moment, I also remember vividly of like standing in a courtroom next to my client and having that feeling of like wanting to look left and then wanting to look right. Like, is anybody with me on this? And there being nobody in the room who was with me. Over the decades she spent doing public defense, she grew increasingly disillusioned. We would call the lab and ask to speak with the analyst, and they would flat out refuse to talk to us. We would be asking for the work. We would be asking for their notes, their worksheets, all of the things that support their conclusions, and it was a constant battle. Manka was dealing with a lab that was officially run by the D.C. Police Department. It wasn't an independent agency like the Virginia Lab, although there's debate over how much difference, quote-unquote, lab independence really makes. One thing that's not up for debate... There's really no dispute that Black communities, other communities of color, poor communities, other marginalized communities are disparately affected at all stages of the criminal legal system. Black and brown communities are policed more, they are searched more, they are arrested more, they get worse plea offers, they are convicted more, they are wrongfully convicted more, all disproportionately more, even when you control for other factors. Every single one of those phases that I just described is influenced by technology. Forensics is technology. It's scientific knowledge used as a tool for law enforcement. And crime labs are designed to help with the investigation of crimes. But when you look at the racial makeup of who's being convicted, the disproportionate impacts on people of color are obvious. And I should say, of those 13 exonerees we've been talking about in this series, 11 of them were Black. So... How do we address the systemic problems with forensics? This is a question I put to a lot of people. You need to change policies going forward and not just reopen old cases. There are some ideas out there for how to improve things, from academics like Brandon Garrett, who you just heard. He also says we need better judicial rules, making sure juries understand how reliable a particular technique is and how reliable a particular expert is. And we don't know that. We have no idea whether this is a really good expert that gets fingerprints right all the time, or whether this person is a total disaster and shouldn't be trusted in court. The Innocence Project's Peter Neufeld says there are ways forensic labs could keep tabs on the quality of the analyst's work. We have advocated for 30 years for blind external testing, where you submit specimens as if it was a real case so the people in the laboratory don't know whether it's a real case or they're being tested. Virginia Beach Sheriff Ken Stolle is a big advocate for oversight boards. If you have a policy team and you have 10 people thinking about it, it's better than having one person have total say-so over that. These kinds of measures would definitely help. And listen, I'm pro-science. Not junk sciences that have been discredited, but real science, like DNA analysis, I'm all in. I think science has the potential to be a check on weaker parts of the criminal legal system. Just think of all the cracks in the system that DNA has already exposed. But talking to Manka, it got me thinking that 
If we really want science to play a role in correcting the flawed processes and biases of our system, we need to dig a lot deeper. These little tweaks at the margins aren't going to quote-unquote fix anything because the system is doing what it was designed to do. And what is the system designed to do? Manka says there's a strain of thinking that's been gaining momentum. And it starts with the idea that the entire carceral system has its origins in white supremacy, in our system of chattel slavery. It served an explicit purpose of maintaining racial hierarchy. And so so there's this tension between traditional reform or conventional sorts of reforms and more radical approaches that really confront the origins of the system, seek to minimize harm, seek to contract the system and delegitimize the system rather than expand it. Maybe it's time for a little bit more of a radical rethinking of how we're doing this. I wanted to ask how hopeful you personally feel about the prospects of reform. You don't want to ask me that. (laughs) I've spent a lot of time thinking about this question. When I started reporting on Mary Jane Burton and the 13 exonerations, I kept getting the same warning. You're opening Pandora's box. Now that we've opened the box, let's talk about how that myth ends. So, as the story goes, Pandora opens the box and all these evil forces come flying out into the world. But what I didn't know is that, according to the original telling, not everything escapes. Pandora slams the lid with one thing left inside. Hope. Now, what does that mean? That's been the source of some debate. Is the world left without hope because it's trapped in the box? Or did Pandora save hope? Is hope all that we're left with after all the evils have been unleashed? Even though this is the last episode of this season, we're not going to stop reporting. I hope to have updates for you on future seasons of this show about some action from the state, an investigation by the lab, or ideally someone outside the lab, We've reached out to Virginia's governor, several members of the state legislature, other lawmakers. So far, we haven't gotten much of a response. We did get one lawmaker on the record. So Mary Jane Burton was initially treated as a hero. In March of 2023, VPM state politics reporter Ben Pavier and I spoke with Virginia State Delegate Don Scott. He's the head of the House Democratic Caucus. Perhaps we got Scott's attention because he's also a practicing attorney. He's done a lot of criminal defense work, and so he's dealt with the Virginia Crime Lab himself. I scrutinize everything when it comes to these folks because I just don't, I don't trust the system. I'm, I'm, a, I'm a natural cynic and a skeptic anyway, so I naturally don't trust anything they give me. What, what caused that skepticism for you? I'm a black man in America. What are you talking about? I mean, I already know the system is not uh, designed for us to necessarily get equal justice all the time, so you have to be extra diligent to make sure that folks don't have an agenda that does not include you getting some justice. Yeah, you you don't seem that surprised by what we've uncovered. This is my life. I mean, I I know how the system works, and it just, uh, it can eat people up. She had all of those cases, 15 years of cases, 
And all of those folks knew that she was a problem, and they knew that she wasn't following basic uh, lab protocol. They knew that they couldn't get accredited while she was there. They knew that she was falsifying information, and they did nothing about it. Do you think that says anything about Virginia's culture at the time? Not about Virginia. It's about America. I mean, come on, man. Let's not be naive. This happens. This is about weakness and power and race, those who are weak, those who get preyed upon. And so this is not unusual. This happens all over the country. You can go to any state. It's probably the same. But I think what we're doing is we're making some inroads. We just have to keep chopping wood, keep holding people accountable. You know, I'm a cynic, but I'm an optimistic cynic. I want to keep working and getting done. Otherwise, I wouldn't be in this business. I'm reminded of something Gina Demas said the first time I met her about why she thinks the people in charge of the lab didn't do anything about Mary Jane Burton. But nobody cared. Because who was it? Mostly. Poor people, black people mostly. Who gives a shit? Oh, and you used to hear this all the time. If they didn't do this, they did something else. They're criminals. Before our interview ends, I share this with Don Scott. People being convicted were people of color. They were usually people without a lot of money, you know, who weren't considered powerful or important. Welcome to America, baby. Hard at work on season two of Admissible. Visit our website at admissible.vpm.org where you can find additional information or share tips and suggestions. Admissible is produced and hosted by Tessa Kramer. Our executive producer is Ellen Horn. Original reporting by Tessa Kramer and Sophie Behrman, with additional reporting by Ben Pavier and Whitney Evans. Our editor is Danielle Elliott, with additional editing by Ellen Horn. Our production team is Dana Bialik, Chloe Wynn, Gilda DiCarli, Leslie Nyer. Production legal by Craig Merritt and Ennis Smolanski. Gavin Wright is VPM's managing producer for podcast. Meg Lindholm is the director of podcast production. Sound design and mix by Charles Michelet. Music by Del Toro Sound and Story Mechanics. And with additional music by APM. Our theme music is by me. Brian J. Howard of Del Toro Sound. Contributions of music and performances by Jay Gonzalez, Carlton Owens, Nick Rosen, Matt Pistol Stosel, Kevin Sweeney, and R. Sloan Simpson. Special thanks to Steve Humble, Paige Williams, Chioki Ianson, Kelly Jones, John and Eileen Kramer, and iHeartMedia's Beth Ann Macaluso and Dylan Fagan. Extra special thanks to Danielle Furley and Brian Horn for reading trial transcripts and to Alexandra Cole for PR and marketing support. Admissible Season 1 Shreds of Evidence is produced by Story Mechanics and VPM, Virginia's home for public media. We are distributed by iHeartMedia. VPM.